Hello and welcome to the Behind the Wheel podcast, the brainchild and culmination of my own huge love for cars, but also my own desire to ensure that nobody ever goes through what I went through a couple of years ago, where, where, where I was hating my job, hating my nine to five, hating everything around me. And I kind of realized that, you know what, there's way more to life um, than just a nine to five and not enjoying what you do every single day. And with that in mind, I am so, so delighted to welcome Nilesh Palmer to the podcast today, someone who is and continues to inspire me every single day from his various social media accounts. And also, um, just in terms of his achievements, what he's managed to do over the last couple of years, and also, of course, his amazing, amazing car collection that we are going to talk about today. So sit back, grab some popcorn, and look forward to this interview. On your, your spiel when we spoke before, I find that a lot of people, you need to find something which really which really inspires you so whatever profession it may be but that's only if you really enjoy the job that you do now the problem you have is that nowadays people are conditioned to figure out what they want to do from a very young age and you don't know what you want to do from such a young age right you may think you want to become a lawyer because your dad's a lawyer or your uncle's a lawyer and you think it's something you've been brought over but you might spend all those years training to become a lawyer and then the day the first day you you go into law school you think I don't really like law. It's boring. It's too much reading. I'd rather do banking or something else. And that's the key thing for the youngsters, just to get a taste of everything and then decide what they like. Don't worry about the money. I was always told, if you become, imagine if you looked at Gordon Ramsay and imagine if Gordon Ramsay was an Indian kid, right? And he went to his mum and dad and he went, mum and dad, I want to become a chef. You know what, my my mum would probably hit me with a velen or something if I said to her, that's what I wanted to do. I am so, so happy and so delighted to welcome Nilesh to the podcast. Someone who, I'm not going to lie, Neil, I've had many, many weeks of looking forward to this. I know we had various scheduling issues or whatever else, but we finally made it work. So thank you so much for joining me today, man. My pleasure. Thank you not for having me. Not at all, me. not at all. Um, I guess first, for those who might not know who you are, just give us a brief overview <laughs> as, as to what you do. Um, so my name is Nilesh. Um, I qualified actually as a dentist in 2004 I think it was um and then went on to do quite a lot of postgraduate training and primarily um I work as an implant surgeon so we replace missing teeth most of my work is surgical based um also have a few other businesses that I run um mostly um related to healthcare we do PR we do marketing have a consultancy firm um, and have a small property business as well. So um, that's pretty much me. But in terms of car-wise, I'm like you. I, I love my cars. So I think that's where we have a common interest. Absolutely. absolutely. And we, we, we will go deep into that. But I'll just say all my guests um, as, a, as, a, as, as a first set of questions, what does, uh, what does your kind of dream five-car garage look like, Milesh? Oh, wow. That's a good question, isn't it? Um <clears throat> So I think number one, there'd have to be some kind of Rolls Royce in there after um, test driving ghosts and things. And luckily, um, Rolls Royce Essex gave me a Cullinan for the weekend, which was really, really nice. That's, and big. The, that's, the, that's the 4x4 one, right? That's the SUV Rolls Royce. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, <clears throat> but once you've driven it for a little while, the size sort of disappears. 
Um, so I think you'd have to have a Rolls Royce, either a, a Ghost or a Phantom. Um, I think being a Ferrari guy, you'd have to have two Ferraris, a V12 Ferrari, um, which for me would have to be an 812 GTS. Yeah. Um, and then you'd have to have a naturally aspirated um, Ferrari. So for me, again, that would have to be a 458 Speciale. Um, and then I think I would also want um, a racing Ferrari. Um, so a 488 Evo. And then obviously being a very um, big Ferrari guy, I'd probably have to have a La Ferrari in there as well. So that would be basically all Ferraris and a Rolls Royce is what my dream garage would be. Where the Lambo is that, man? I'm not a Lambo guy. I you mean, they're, they're trying. They're trying. Um, HIO and Corin and all the guys there are trying. My, my, um, some of my best friends have got Lambos. So if I, if I needed a Lambo, um, so if I wanted a Lambo for a drive or something, I could just borrow Babs or Babs's Lambo without too much trouble. So that, that's the best type of ownership, right? Take the car and then just give it back. Um, but I do feel as a petrol head, I, I should tick that Lambo box at some point. Um, I was looking at a Eurus, maybe, but I think I would like something. Um, but let's see, not just yet. I'm still going through my Ferraris at the moment. I'm a big, big Ferrari guy. So, yeah, not just yet. Where does I, I know there's quite a cool story behind your love for Ferraris. It, 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 it's, it's, it's not just like you woke up one day and it was Ferrari. There's, there's actual story behind it, isn't there? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> when, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I used to watch um, Formula One. And I remember watching it with my dad. And I'd literally lie on his belly, on his chest while Formula One was up. And I must have been like nine or ten or something. And um, as the years go by, I just saw Michael Schumacher. And um, I, in fact, I'm going to show you something. Um, give me one second. Let's do it. Because um, I'm actually upstairs, which is quite handy because all the helmets are up here. Um, so... I just saw Michael Schumacher just winning absolutely everything. And yeah. um, so my love for Mr. Schumacher became, and then it was these, you always had these red Ferraris with gold wheels. And they just used to go round and round. He won the first championship, the second championship, the third championship, the fourth championship, the fifth championship. And he went on and on. And then um, he, he just became a bit of a, of a idol of mine. And, um, Few years ago, I was lucky enough to actually buy one of his race helmets. So this is a an actual Schumacher helmet that he signed. Um, so this is like one of my prized possessions, um, and um, which my little nephew likes to put on when he comes round, much to my um, worry. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, he was always driving Ferraris, and from that, I just went into Ferraris. Um, and since I sort of bought my first Ferrari. You, once it gets under your skin, it's really hard to look at a different manufacturer. And lots of credit to Lamborghini and all the other supercar uh, makers and Porsche, etc. But there's something special about the ownership of a Ferrari. Is something that once it gets under your skin, it's really difficult to get it out. And I've been lucky enough to keep going through the ranks of Ferrari, Ferrari, and keep changing the models each time. And um, I'm pretty. Um, happy with my collection there's a new car coming soon which i'm sure we'll talk about at some point um yeah. but that's where my love of ferrari came and that's where my love of motor racing came as well because i'm a huge f1 fan and you know I've, I've made you schedule this so that i can actually watch the f1 which is actually i'm i'm just i've got the um the bits going on right now in the background that is, check out that room man yeah wow so, so th this is my um this is my cinema room with lots of helmets and 
F1 memorabilia and all that sort of stuff. And up here is my uh, Bruno Senna race suit that oh I won. Well, I didn't win. I had to pay for it at auction. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm obviously really, really big into um, motor racing. It forms a big part of my life um, on a day-to-day basis to everything I do. is very, very important to me. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, take us back to kind of your kind of early days of, of uh, growing up. Because, I mean, someone like yourself has got a lot of drive. You know, you, you, you're constantly pushing yourself. You know, I think you, I think you did an MBA. You, you've always kind of gone above and beyond just the normal kind of nine to five. Where does that kind of, that kind of desire or passion or work ethic come from? Um, I think a lot of it comes from my father. My my dad was just working as loads of Asian parents who come from India or Africa come over here. They just work their backsides off. Their their entire being is just to work, work very, very hard, right? And my dad would work six days a week nonstop. And whenever he came home, he was always happy. There was never any stress in his voice. Um, and he honestly does love um, what he loves his job, loves his profession. Um, but for me, it was always a question of growing up. I was, I was always like the smallest kid or not the most intelligent kid. I was never at the top of anything. I was never what I would call a memorable individual. Um, and I went into a little bit recently. I had quite a bad stammer until I was like, um, in my 13, 14. Um, so you never felt as if you were on equal grounds as everyone else. And also being Asian and growing up in Essex, um, and even to this very day, there is still mild or established cultural racism involved in all fields, it's medical field, everything. It's everywhere. Um, and you always felt as if you had to work a little bit harder to get noticed. Um, so for me, my, my passion was always just get on with it, right? I don't procrastinate. If there's something you need to do, you just get on with it. I don't ask for advice, which perhaps I should do. Um, if I know I need to do a job, I just do it. I don't sit and wait and think about it. I just get it done. Um, and things with like the MBA and some of the other postgraduate degrees I, I did, it was just a question of you just compartmentalize your time. I'm a big fan of having a calendar and organizing your week and setting things. I'm a very goal-orientated person. So if I know I need to do this today, that, tomorrow, etc., and if I do it, then I'll reward myself either some rest time or do something that I enjoy. I'm somebody who has to achieve something before I reward myself. And that was always important to me. It wasn't a question of I reward myself because I you know, did something minor. It was always a question of you have to do something before you reward yourself. Um, and to me, that was always key. And um, one thing that one of my uncles said to me, he said, if you're not moving forward, you're sinking. You've always got to look at the next goal. Um, and that could either be from a business perspective, that could be from an academic perspective. It could be whatever floats your boat, right? Um, but for me, that passion is still there. I think post-COVID, you, you do lose a bit of mojo, maybe. Um, it's been hard for everyone, and I think it's affected everyone in different levels, in different ways. Um, but slowly, slowly, being at home for two, three months while we were locked down, it did let me reorganize and decide what I want to do for the next five years of my life. So for me, it's always about planning, and but not just planning, but executing the plan. Because you can plan all day long, right? But if you don't execute it, there's, there's no point. How do you, um, when it comes to goal setting, Nilesh, how do you decide what kind of goals to go for? How do you decide how, how ambitious to be? Um, what does the kind of process look like for you? Um, I think your camera's turned off as well, buddy. Um, for me, so let's say if your goal is I want to achieve 
some notable level in your professional. My goal is by the age of 45, I want to retire from seeing clinical patients or I want to have three practices, four practices, five practices. You write your goal down and you try and make it achievable and then you draw a pathway. I'm a big fan of actually drawing a pathway, of writing down your goals and then just getting on with it. You say, right, okay, I need to do this and I need to do this. And if I do this, I've then got to do this. And you react to things as you go along. One thing I don't do is I try and deal with things as they arrive. So during the day, if I get an email, I deal with it straight away. As you know, if I get a WhatsApp message, I deal with it almost straight away. I'm very responsive on all forms of communication. Um, I don't let things sit. If if I leave somebody on red receipts because, A, you're not that important to me, and B, I've got better things to do with my time, to be honest. Um, but if there's something which I think would be beneficial to me, I get on it straight away. Um, and that, to me, is key. You've got to be responsive. You know, Keep, keep moving forward. I, in terms of, and I remember on, on your, your spiel when we spoke before, I find that a lot of people, you need to find something which really, which really inspires you. So whatever profession it may be, if you enjoy what you do, then working won't be a chore, right? You won't worry about Sunday night because Monday morning's coming. Yeah. Um, but that's only if you really enjoy the job that you do. Now, the problem you have is that nowadays people are conditioned to figure out what they want to do from a very young age. Yeah. And you don't know what you want to do from such a young age, right? You may think you want to become a lawyer because your dad's a lawyer or your uncle's a lawyer and you think it's something you've been, whatever. But you might spend all those years training to become a lawyer. And then the day, the first day you, you go into law school, you think, I don't really like law. It's boring. It's too much reading. I'd rather do banking or something else. And that's the key thing for the youngsters, just to get a taste of everything and then decide what they like. Don't worry about the money. I was always told, unless you never chase the money, just enjoy what you do, do good work, be fair to people, and the money will come. Right? And if you're just worried about making money, yes, you may actually do that, but will you be fulfilled in your life? Will you be fulfilled in your job? Probably not. Yeah. So you've just got to find your passion and find something you enjoy. It could be cooking. Yeah. It could be making banana bread or whatever it may be. But if you become, imagine if you looked at Gordon Ramsay and imagine if Gordon Ramsay was an Indian kid, right? And he went to his mum and dad and he went, mum and dad, I want to become a chef. You know what that in my, my mum would probably hit me with a velen or something if I said to her, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> but, but then look at, look at Gordon Ramsay now, right? Yeah. So I think that's something we all have to consider that, especially amongst Asian families, you're preconditioned to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, or you have to have some form of official qualification because for our parents, that was how they got over into this country, right? It was very important to them. But if that isn't what your heart wants you to do, then don't do it. Find something else. I am, I can't, I'd find it, and I know you're going to interview Bav soon as well, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So me and Bav are very different, right? So Bav is uber, uber successful, probably one of the shrewdest businessmen I've ever met. And Whenever I do anything big, I always run it by him because I trust his aptitude and he can see avenues and things that I miss completely. But we're very different in our, in our journeys. So my journey was very academic. I, I find it hard to go in front of audiences and podcasts etc., and say, look, you don't need to have a degree to be successful because I have seven and that'd make me a hypocrite, right? but you don't need to have xyz degrees because look at bav look at babs look at some of my closest friends who are much more successful than i am 
and they don't have um, as many, or they don't, they're not, they're not academics. Um, so it all depends upon what field you're looking at and what you want to do. I wouldn't be a very good healthcare professional if I wasn't qualified to do it. Yeah. Right? Then I'd go to prison. But if you want to be a businessman and entrepreneur, yes, you don't need it. But it, is it helpful? Could it help you? Yeah, I think it could. But you have outliers. And the problem is the outliers are far and few between, right? There's not many Bavs out there, right? There's not many Yannis out there or whoever else you're going to interview. Um, but there's a lot of medium level, successful, qualified individuals who still have a good life. Um, and they've got to that level because of the qualifications and the university qualifications that they've had. So it's, it's either one, it's not one way or the other. It can be an amalgamation of the two. But, um, I'm still a, a big fan of, um, academia and education. I, I do think it's important, but important in something you enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Where does that, that, that love come from? That, 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 that love for dentistry? Um, so my, my dad, um, his, excuse me, he retired. Um, he's come back to work. He was an author. He's an orthodontist and a general dentist. And I used to watch him working. I actually, when I was a kid, I wanted to be um, a detective because I used to watch um, Miami Vice. And I see Don Johnson get all the girls with a white convertible Ferrari. <laughs> and uh, I managed to get a white convertible Ferrari at some point. And you don't get any women if you've got a white convertible Ferrari. <laughs> let, let me tell you, it works the other direction. Um, and um, so, I, so I had a paper round. And um, I think at the time, I was I think I was 12 or 13. And uh, my mum wasn't happy with me doing a paper round. It was raining and all that. And her precious boy was, you know, getting up early. So I got a job offer in my dad's clinic in one of his clinics. And he said, you can do the odd jobs and I'll give you a fiver for Saturday morning. So I was like, that's, that's a pretty good proposition. Cause hey, I was getting like three pound 50 from that Mr. Patel corner shop paper round. <laughs> so this was more money. I didn't have to get up at 6am and, um, I got driven to work and back. So I wasn't exposed to the, um, to the elements. So started working there and then started learning how the professional work, learned how the business side worked um, started working on reception and kind of worked my way up as much as I could being a, a kid. And then I wanted to actually become a doctor because I used to watch ER and, um, there was a cardiothoracic surgeon called Benton, um, who I thought was really, really cool. And I looked at medicine and, but then I looked at, you know, how, how hard it would be. And you wouldn't own your own business. It's very hard for doctors to own their own businesses. Whereas dentists, all dental clinics are private businesses, even yeah, for NHS yeah. clinics. So I just kind of fell into dentistry. And to be honest, I didn't like it at university. I struggled at university. Really? Yeah, I struggled. I wasn't, I was good at the clinical side of things, but the exams, the academic side of things, I found really, really difficult. Um, it was only until I'd qualified and I started working in one of the hospitals and I had a very good consultant who sort of took me under his wing. Did it start to click, you know? And then you get that confidence and think, you know, what? I'm actually really good at what I do. And that was one of the things where if you know that you're good at what you do, you get a lot of satisfaction from it. Whereas if you've got a job where you know you're not very good at it or you're okay at it, um, it's hard to get a lot of reward from that. Right? Um, but with dentistry, I just realized that, yeah, I was actually pretty good and did one master's. Um, I didn't get into a course I wanted to do, so I fell into another one. And then there was one implant course that I wanted to do, which they only take four people every two years. And they have like 800 applicants. So I managed to get into that one by default. All of my stuff is like default. I get in through places, through luck, mainly. Um, did that program and that kind of made my life because that, that's a speciality that is very, very well remunerated, very highly skilled, very stressful. Most of the litigation is around that sort of work. But if you pull it off and you do it well, 
the, the numbers get get very very good so i was very lucky to get into that and the the whole mba side of things i just came home one day and my dad had left like a newspaper and he said oh there's an mba fair there maybe you should check it out you're thinking about it so i went along and um interviewed with a few universities and actually got a scholarship um or part scholarship with imperial college and once they've offered you a place offered you a part scholarship it's quite hard to say no right so i did it and it was one of the hardest things i've ever done in my life so 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 hard but it totally changed my mindset so on the basis of that i set up my race team i got sponsorship for the first three years of motor racing that i did in caterums um i set up a healthcare consultancy firm we had a small property business that i set up invested in a few companies most were useless one actually did quite well um we got an ibm award because we invented uber for light aircraft because i had a pilot's license i was flying so we invented an actual app that was working um so it just changed the mindset totally and you have that eureka moment where you think all right i've trained for so many years just doing healthcare but the skill set that makes you good at healthcare can make you good at loads of other things as well um and then on the back of that i started writing i really enjoy writing i wrote chapters in textbooks um i'm starting a mba a dental mba online course that i'll give and that will be happening next year so it just kind of helped me set up a lot of other side hustles that were complementary to my core profession um which are slowly slowly beginning to pay off and i really enjoy it like it's really really good fun um and it's not work you know it's enjoyable and hopefully you get remunerated for it but you you keep improving your network you know things keep getting bigger and bigger so that that's all that passion comes from so it's it's amazing cause when i when i when i speak to you when i did some reading on you you've got like many many different interests and passions and you know yeah. it's hard to kind of just just narrow you down into one thing yeah um it, it's it, it must be i mean how, how do you decide what is the main what is the main thing that you use to decide whether or not to pursue something um is it, is it just literally do I think it might be quite cool? Is that is that how you think about it, or what? What, what is it kind of shapes your decision making around things to pursue? If that makes sense. So in the beginning, it was just: is it cool or is it not cool? Right? It was just as simple as like: does it does it spark my interest? So I look at it and think: yeah, that that'd be really sick. Now there is a bit of that there too. Um, is it something I would enjoy doing? Um, but also now you look at the numbers. You'd look at: is there a track record for this business? Who would be the main competitors? Can we can we pivot into this sideline with other resources that we have? Um, so I was offered investment in <coughs> two companies this week, and um, and they're all complementary to healthcare. But declined both of them because I just didn't think the idea was good enough. And a lot of it is on your own mindset and what you think will work. And also for me, because there's so much going on at the moment, and we're we're um, buying other clinics and some more acquisitions over the next 10 to 12 months. You don't have time to develop something which is really, really small. You need something which has already got a track record and then build on that. So for me, a lot of it is just how much time do I have? And I now I say no to a lot of stuff. Um, I don't have the energy that Bav has. So Bav just says yes to everything, right? Bav just says and makes everything work somehow. But I don't have that level of energy that he has. I don't know what he drinks in the morning. Um, but nowadays, I'm being a bit more selective about stuff. There is the odd thing that I think is cool and it slips through the net. But generally, I'm, I am quite selective now. now. Now that you have a good base and I know what works for me, I know it has to be complementary to healthcare for me. So we're involved in an indemnity startup and a few other um, 
issues going on and and for me it's just does it sing to me do, do i think that the idea has potential and um, that that's very important i want to um i want to touch on failure um mm. as a as a as a topic for a second because i know a lot of young people are often scared they're scared about the what if they're scared about being embarrassed or looking like they are the worst thing in the world or what will their parents think or whatever it is and someone who runs a business or businesses like yourself i guess you've probably been through a fair amount of hardship and dare i say it failure how do you approach failure and uh, well back then in the early days and how do you approach it now so in the early days and like everyone i had some really big issues i mean yeah we had some I had some big, big issues in, in the beginning. And I think it was just resilience is a key, key word that I would use for that. It's just focusing on your goals and not dwelling on it. The thing is, you can you can have bad news right? and you can just tell the whole world about my bad news and you can play that pity party. And we've all got those friends who put their lives on social media and who want sympathy and say, oh, this happened to me. I'm so sad. And, and I've never been one of those people. I was like, right, okay, this has happened. This is the problem. How do we fix it? And for me, it's always been taking emotion and ego out of the equation. Um, and I was very good from an early age. It's just taking emotion out of the equation. I mean, probably because I got bullied when I was younger. But you, you take the emotion out of it. Um, and it really helps because I think emotion can hold you back quite a lot. And for me, if you recognize the failure, you try and figure out why did it happen? Was it me? Did I not work hard enough? Was it something that I control? Then that's easy because you can fix that, right? Because that's within your control. If it's because of somebody else's actions, then you can't control their actions, right? So you need to pivot and move in a different direction. Um, but nowadays, when I see failure, I, I think, great, tax write-off, number one, right? Um, number two is why did it happen and how can I rectify? And now I'm not as much worried about, did I do something wrong or was it my fault? It's has somebody else not done the work that I needed them to do? Have, have I not inspired or been clear in the direction to somebody else? And that's something that you can try and work. You know, you change your team, you'd hire new staff, etc. Um, and it's very much carrot or stick. What works? What's your kind of management style? Um, but failure is something we all get, right? All of us who've been successful have had huge ups and downs. And there's that, there's that graph where if you have time and success or something, it's not like that. It's like this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? yeah. And that's something that always stuck in my head. And it was always a question of life is never going to be easy. It will always be ups and downs. But for me, there's sacrifices, right? There's always sacrifices in everything you do. And, and for me, the, the main sacrifice would probably be um, relationships for me. That's why I'm, I'm 40 and currently um, a bachelor, right? Because I've dedicated so much time and energy into my career and studies and academia that probably relationships used to take a, a second place stance um despite all the aunties trying to get me um married off um but, but failure is something we're all going to come across and don't be afraid of it you embrace it understand why it happened and then pivot and move on that's amazing um, obviously, people might not know this, but you're obviously massive on Instagram and you put a lot of inspiring, um, enlightening stuff on there. And, you know, it's certainly inspired me a, 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 a few times. Um, how did you kind of get into that? Because it, it seems like quite a, quite an active active place for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. It's, you know, the thing was, um, for me, the, the whole Instagram thing is I started off and it was fun. And, you know, you were just kind of showing off and doing silly things and 
Um, but then it became a bit of a tool. And I have, I have different accounts. I have like a work one and I have a personal. And the personal one is probably a bit more fun, right? Um, and also we connect, I connect with a lot of people through Instagram. A lot of my friends, etc. I've met through Instagram. Um, and it's actually become, I had, I had like a Instagram marketing manager and somebody else tried to do it for me. And it's never the same. You need to do it yourself because it doesn't come across as genuine if somebody else does it. Right. Um, and now it's kind of a nice record of your life. You know, what have you done? What have you been doing, et cetera. But for me, it went from a period of showing off. Oh, look at me. I've got lots of X, Y, Z, um, to sort of willy waving. Um, and now I've actually, um, it was one of my, um, uh, close family members said, you know what, your this, my son who was 16 or 17 looks at your social media and, and he says he wants to be like you when he grows up. And I was like, I'm sure he could do much better than be like me. Um, but then it made me think, and when you look at all the messages, it's, I get lots of Asian guys following me, lots of younger Asian people. I think, right, Nilesh, you need to sort of take a bit of responsibility for the stuff you post and try and be honest and genuine in the stuff you post, but also try and show them that there is a lot of work involved and it's not just all, you know, holidays and cars and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I've tried to be a bit more inspiring. And my main message, which I think was really applicable, was mainly aimed at young Asian guys who I think can be highly pressured to be successful. Um, they have lots of expectations on them. And I think there is a lot of mental health issues amongst young Asian guys. And in the Asian community, we don't talk about mental health at all. It's not anything that's ever out there. Um, and how many people are depressed in jobs that they don't like and something that, you know, you, you touched upon as well. Um, and I just wanted to try and bring some positivity to it to say, look, it doesn't matter if you're brown. It doesn't matter if you were bullied when you were younger, if you're fat, if you uh, had a stammer or whatever, you can still do really well. And yeah, we all need a bit of luck. We all get help from our, our parents and friends and family. But inherently, you need to make that decision to get your head down to become successful. And you don't need to be successful and own 10 Lamborghinis. You could be successful and just own a home, right? Um, but that was my my point, which was to try and inspire that sort of young Asian mentality a little bit more. Um, and I get really nice messages from people. And I try and reply to everyone. Uh, most of the time. Um, and that's the whole point of the account. Now, I feel as if it's kind of a bit of CSR, like corporate social responsibility, just to try and help. And also for my nephews, I've got two young nephews to try and um, be something positive for them as well. Um, not to be embarrassed of their crazy uncle who gets drunk doing champagne campaign with the boys. But I say, yeah, that's my uncle. Isn't he cool? Um, and I think the older I get, the more I want to try and give back. I mean, we, we do a lot of charity work. I'm involved with um, a charitable foundation started by my good friend Shaz, which is um, sending water wheels to um, India. And we did a big COVID drive during um, the lockdown to send money to, to India. Um, so a lot of it now is, is trying to use that um, presence on social media for good, as opposed to, you know, look at me, I'm drunk in a club or something. Yeah. There's a lot of um, young people who are scared of... Um putting themselves out there on social media what would be your advice to them yeah aren't we all um the problem is when you put yourself out on social media you will get abuse you'll get douchebags um it can make certain things difficult you have to have a good grounding you need to be a little bit um thick-skinned 
um, because you'll always get trolls, you'll always get social media bullying, etc. Um, does it bother me now? No, not really. It doesn't bother me at all. Because now I know if I screenshot it and put it on my story, that person will just get annihilated, right? Um, but I, I think with anything, if it doesn't scare you, right? If you're doing something new and it doesn't scare you, it's not anything new. So my advice would be, see, from, if you look at my social media, I never used to put my face on it in the beginning, right? It would always be, the camera would be the other way. Yeah, it wouldn't be yeah. aimed at me. Yeah. Um, and it's only, I'd say, in the recent five years or so have I started putting more of myself out there. Um, and the the comeback from it has been, I mean, obviously you do get some funny messages from people, but the comeback generally is very, very good. Um, and my advice would be don't be afraid. You know, start slowly. Um, share only as much as you're comfortable sharing. Uh, but remember, whatever you share could inspire someone. It could make somebody from having a crappy day to having a good day. So um, I'd say go for it if it was me. So just go for it. Who cares what people say? You only have one life, right? Don't worry about other people. So true. Well, let's let's go on to cars, man. Uh, yeah, let's yeah. go through your car, your, your car journey, man. What was your first car, man? So my first car um, was from my uncle's um, 1.5 litre Proton SE GLX or something, which had electric Proton. Return. Oh, my God. I remember yeah, those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Proton. It was, and that was still his car. We kind of used to share it a little bit. Uh, I'd say the first proper car that I had was an Audi A3 1.6 Sport is what I had. It was a blue one. Um, and then I went through a few Audis. And then my first proper sports car was a Porsche 911 Carrera. Okay. That was my first one. Yeah, yeah that was my first one. And uh, the, I'll tell you a story about that, the interesting thing. Um so I got that car quite relatively young. I think I was 23, 24. Wow. Um, I used to do a lot of day trading at university. So when Vodafone was getting takeover and TD Warhouse and all that sort of stuff, um, I made quite a lot of money on it. And you'd get like a, an NHS bursary each year and I used to invest the money in. And I qualified and I had like um, 35, 40 grand. And back then, 911s were about 58,000 pounds or something. So I worked for about six months, saved some money, and then bought a brand new 911. Um, and I used to bring it to all the sort of study days that we used to have. And I remember there was one senior person who gave me a lot of shit for having a, a 911. And that was an important lesson for me, which was um, if you are successful and you arrive somewhere in a fancy car, whatever it is, you'll always get somebody who's going to give you some shit for it. There'll always be somebody who will see your success as them not being successful. So in your achievements, they'll mm. see their regrets, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And if they have the guts, they'll take it out on you. Now, back then I was 23 and I was quite timid back then. Um, if somebody did that to me now, I'd really enjoy it because I think I would really enjoy destroying them. But back then it kind of affected me a little bit. And I was like, well, you know, I've got this car. I'm so proud of it. I work so hard. Um, and maybe it was the wrong decision. Maybe I should have done X, Y, Z with the money. And that was an important lesson for me, which is who cares what other people think, right? You're not hurting anyone. You're not doing anything wrong. You be you, right? And let other people worry about it. That was a, that was a key, key lesson. But after that, I um, had another 911, had a C4S. Um, then I bought my first Ferrari, a F430. Then I had a KN as well. Um, and then I had a 458. Then I had a Macan GTS. Then I had a 458 convertible. Then I had a 458 Speciale. 
then I had another KN, then I had a 488 coupe, 488 convertible, um, and then the Pista. So now I've got the Speciali, the Pista, a KN coupe. Um, I had two race cars at one point. I had a Porsche Boxster S race car and a Caterham uh, 330R race car as well. But those two I've sold since um, lockdown. And then there's um, a Ferrari 812 GTS coming early next year. So And, and I've got a 911 C4S. Sorry, I forgot about that. I've got a 911. Another I, I have to ask, right? Um, help, like, describe what it's like buying your first Ferrari. Like that, that must be a, a, a crazy moment, right? So the first new uh, so the first new Ferrari, right, was an amazing thing. Because you spec it and you obsess over every single detail. What colour, what colour is the stitching, what seat, what wheel, what this, what that, what number plate I'm really big into my number plates. What number plate do I put in your car and all that jazz? Yeah. Um but and then what Ferrari do so well that no manufacturer does is you order the car and they'll send you a letter from Stefano Dominic, the, the main dude at Ferrari, right? Signed. Congratulations, thank you for ordering the car. You have an app on your phone, and on the phone you have all the cars that you've owned and ones in progress. But when the car gets made, they send you picture updates of the car. They'll send you the oh. shell, they'll send you the chassis of the car as an email. And they'll say, your Ferrari has been born. Oh, so my God. Like, and then a week later, you get another picture saying, your Ferrari has now been painted. And you get a picture of it on the production line because they have cameras. Then they'll send you a little gift. So you get loads of cigar boxes and stuff. <laughs> right? Don't smoke. Never smoked. But they, you can put other stuff in it. A carbon fiber cigar box. Then you get another picture of your car finished on the production line. So your finished car is there on the... And dude, when, when I used to get those images, my heart used to, my heart rate used to go up because it's like the thing has been born out of nothing. And then when the car arrives, you, you get, you get a message from the dealer and then you go there and the car's all covered in that red shroud. Yeah. 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 And then you get there and they take the red and you see your car for the first time. And you know, I've not got any children, but that is as close as I've ever got. Until <laughs> I, I was like, that was amazing. And my first new Ferrari was the 458 Speciale. And I took it that same day to Bruntingthorpe and did 201 miles an hour at VMAX top speed day because I'm an idiot and we just gunned that car straight away. Um, and then about a month or two months later, Ferrari send you a miniature model of your car, the exact spec um, in the post. Oh, oh my God. And it's made by some family near the, the factory. So every new Ferrari you buy, you get this miniature model, which is your spec. It's not like an off-the-shelf car. So if you've got a yellow seats belt, that thing will have yellow seats belt. If you've got a yellow stitching, you'll have, and it's an exact replica of it. And then you get the Ferrari magazine. You, you'll get stuff. Um, I got some stuff on my birthday. You know, They're always sending you something. So it's as if you're part of this club. You know? And flip that to all the Porsches I've bought, right? I've now bought new Porsches, one, two, three, four, five, five Porsches, right? None of them. Right? They don't tell you when the thing's being made. They, you don't get no model. You don't get any picture. You don't get nothing. All I got was some crappy little paperweight, right, with the VIN number of the car. What do I do with this? I throw this at a rubber. It really do damage. But there's no, it's very German, right? It's very, uh, there's no emotion in it. But in Ferrari, it gives you that emotion behind it. And 
for my pizza, I got the engine bay signed. So every mechanic that was involved in making the car oh, wow. signed the engine bay. Um, it's on my it's on my gram, and I got them to sign it in gold because of my black and gold thing. And they yeah, did yeah, that, yeah. especially for. And you know, it's stuff like that where you think I don't, I don't want to sell that car, right? I want because it's it's like such a important piece to me. So um, if I could, if I could get a lift to have it in my flat, I probably would. <laughs> if I could get the, my dream is to build a house where the cars are in the house itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that maybe once I'm 45 plus would be the dream. But that you know, it just kind of gives you that emotion, you know. Yeah. Whereas the nine, the nine eleven would never be parked in the house; it'd always be parked outside because I don't have that connection with that car. Yeah. But you know what? It's true because I've got a, um, I've got a very, a very good friend of mine who works for Alfa Romeo, and yeah. uh, he always says like, you know, Alfa's about emotion. It's the whole Italian thing, you know. Like it's all about how you feel when you're driving it and you just yeah, don't quite yeah. get that when you're driving a, a five series or a, you know or, or any kind no. of german car really no. um and he always he always talks about that with such emotion and passion and obviously it's, it's coming from you as well um i, I want to just 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 quickly uh, touch on um just kind of a a, a, a a bit of a takeaway moment um obviously you've seen quite a lot of success and what would you say if you were to kind of narrow it down to the two or three qualities that you think are the most important to your success? Uh, what, would, what would those be for those who are listening? Or really um, listening? For me, it, it would be, number one um, would be resilience in, in the eye of failure, right? Because everyone who's been successful has had stuff go wrong. So you just got to be blinkered and just keep focused on your goals, number one. Number two would be networks. Um, and surround yourself with people who've got similar ideologies and similar mindsets to you. So obviously everyone knows that, um, me, Bav, Babs, Mark, etc. Um, we have, and Marumba, sorry, I forget me, tell me off. We all, we all, we have a very tight knit, almost like a family type of friendship, right? Um, and when I spend time with them, you walk away almost being a little bit, um, in awe because of the things that everyone is doing, right? And you can push everyone forward. So you're, the people who you surround yourself with are very, very important, right? Um, and number three is just sheer, sheer perseverance and just don't procrastinate. Just please just get stuff done. Don't sit there watching. I, I have so many friends who've just seen everything on Netflix, right? Every <laughs> new something comes out and they've, they've seen it. I've been like, how do you get the time to watch it? I watch like maybe one hour's worth and I fall asleep or at the end of the day, I watch every half an hour. My mind can't keep up. But some of my friends have seen everything. And I think how, if you've got all that time to watch all that stuff, if you even put 50% of that time on self-development or developing your side hustle or whatever that may be, or becoming better at your main profession, you'd be a much more successful person. Right. So I'm not saying don't watch Netflix because I do, and I'm about to spend an hour watching Formula One, right? But even then, I'll have my laptop in front of me doing bits and replying to emails. You need to keep your eyes on the target. Don't waste time doing other stuff because when you're wasting your time doing other stuff, there's somebody else who's more focused than you are, and they're going to be in front of the line to where you are. Right. So that that would be my third key message. So powerful, man. So powerful. Uh, I guess fine. I ask everyone this before the podcast mm. ends. Uh, what would you want? And it's, it's not a bit depressing, but it's not. It's not supposed to be depressing. Um, what would you want your um, your your legacy to be? Um, I think I've been asked that before, somewhere. I'm trying to remember where. Um, 
I, I think my legacy would be that, you know, and there was, there was one, there's one saying that kind of went to me, which was the, the more you have, the more humble you should be. And for me, I'd want my legacy to be, yes, he lived his life to the fullest, but he helped everyone that he could. And maybe he just inspired a few people along the way. And to me, I'd be happy with that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Nilesh, thank you so much for your Pleasure. very valuable time. Honestly, it's been so much fun having you on the podcast. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll uh, look forward to more uh, more crazy stuff on your on your on your Instagram and uh, hopefully we'll hear hear more from you as we as we go along. Thank you so much for your for your time, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.